0: It was easier for me to blame everybody else like, if you would just change and treat me better, then I would be happier and feel more loved. Like, it was all everybody else's fault and everyone's responsibility to make me happier and to change my life. So when I finally realized, like, it's not anyone else's responsibility and this is mine. And that was really scary. Eventually, I got to a place of so much peace and freedom around it. Like, this is so much easier than <laughs> to rely on everyone else. But that first, like, mm, like, decade, I was like, oh, no, it was too it was too scary.
1: That was a little snippet from this interview with Andrea Owen. If you're not familiar with who she is, she is the life coach and leader behind Your Kick-Ass Life. She has a podcast of that name and you can find her all over social using Your Kick-Ass Life. She is also an author and a mentor who helps high achieving women let go of perfectionism and control and choose courage and confidence instead. We're talking about all of those things. We're also diving into her new book, which is called, How To Stop Feeling Like Shit, which is where the name of this podcast episode obviously came from. We're breaking down habits that really keep us stuck in our lives and keep us away from happiness we deserve. We're both getting really honest in this discussion. We're both being open about some of our struggles and the habits that have left us feeling crappy at times. We're talking people-pleasing, numbing out, self-sabotage, and so much more. It is a juicy episode. If you wanna get a copy of Andrea's new book, head to Amazon and type in how to stop feeling like shit and you'll find it there. I should mention at this point that there is a bit of swearing In this episode. If you've got kiddos in the car or that's not really your thing, this may not be the best episode to listen to. But if you appreciate straight talk and tell it as it is, then stay tuned. Welcome to Here to Thrive. I'm your host, Kate Snowwise. This is a podcast for people who are ready to step up and live a happier life. It's for those of us who are dedicated to understanding ourselves, and getting the best that we can out of this thing called life. It's a mix of psychology and modern spiritual thought, always with a focus on practical advice so that you can take it back and apply it to your own life. I don't believe we're here to merely survive. I truly believe we're here to thrive. So let's get going. Thank you so much for being on here to thrive with me today. I am so looking forward to talking about how to stop feeling like shit.
0: I am so happy to be here. Thank you. Yay, I'm excited. Let's
1: just launch right in. Feeling like shit. What does it actually feel like to feel like shit? What did you notice in your own life when you were feeling shitty? And what do you Mm -hmm. see in your clients when they would potentially use that phrase?
0: Well, of course, it's such a broad thing, right? You can feel like shit in many different ways of your life. But the specific way that I'm referring to when I titled the book was I noticed a pattern starting around, I don't know, maybe four years ago, I started I started noticing a pattern with my clients and the women in my classes and the women in my community and also in my own life too. You know, I'm, I'm not immune to these things. And it was the behaviors. The first ones that I noticed was definitely perfectionism, control, isolating and hiding out, numbing out and overachieving. And I would talk about those behaviors. And really, these are the behaviors that work for us for a little while. And they don't. And these are the things that we do also to protect ourselves. I'm using air quotes over here, protect ourselves from rejection and failure and feelings of shame and, and those types of things. And we do them for a while and they work until we get to a place where they're not working for us anymore and they end up making us feel like shit. So that's where the title and the content came from.
1: You kind of went into it a little bit, but why this book now? Was it because you had started to really see those habits come up over and over again?
0: Yeah, so it wasn't. So I got the idea for the book in 2015. This is, you know, how long traditional publishing takes, and then wrote it in 2016. So this was, you know, before the US election, you know, some people think that I wrote it in kind of a a reaction to what what's been going on culturally and politically over here, and in the rest of the world. But no, it really just was from paying attention and seeing this over and over again, it was just kind of a coincidence that it coincided with the rising up of women and kind of uh, many of us really starting to speak out and start to learn tools in order to try to make changes in this world
1: I hadn't even thought about it in that context but now that totally makes sense you know women Mm -hmm. are rising we're kind of sick of feeling like shit
0: yeah we're sick of it we're sick of all of it
1: (laughs) (laughs) boom ladies boom You talked about in the introduction of the book about your own self-sabotaging habits and Mm -hmm. how perfectionism and control were one of your favorite ways to, to try and control your life. Can we talk a little bit about you and your experience? How did you show up in your own life?
0: Yeah. And of course it was all in retrospect because when I used to read self-help books when I was in my twenties, I would write the names of my friends in the margins because I was like, well, Shelby, this is totally Shelby. You know, this is Carmen. And, and I, I really liked the idea of personal development, but I didn't, it wasn't ready to do the work. So, so all of the behaviors that I now recognize are, are in retrospect, but, I had really engineered or tried to engineer my life to look a certain way. I was mostly living in fear, you know, terrified of of what other people would think of me. And really things like connection and intimacy and trust and and love were the things that I wanted the most, like any human, but they were the things I was most afraid of because it would require me to be vulnerable and show my human side and things like that. I wanted no part of that. I really had, and this is another chapter in the book, I had really identified with the notion of being strong. I, um, you know, like never let them see you sweat. Don't take shit from anybody very much as a piece of armor to protect myself from people. And what that ended up doing is pushing people away. I didn't trust anybody. I was either, I didn't have boundaries at all, so I was either all in completely you know, just oversharing, no emotional boundaries at all, or I was completely walled off. There was no healthy in between. And so my life totally fell apart. I wrote, I wrote very briefly about that in in the beginning of the book. And then that's when I decided, okay, maybe it's me. Um, Maybe I need to look at some stuff and change my life. So that's when really my whole Real personal development started.
1: I love that. Like, maybe it's me. Maybe I could I start with kind of myself. <laughs> yeah, maybe
0: it's me. Mm-hmm.
1: Maybe, maybe it's me. Maybe I could look at myself rather than blaming the world outside me. Yeah. These habits that sustain us the control, the self sabotage, the numbing out they you mentioned they have some utility at the start of the podcast. What does that mean? How do they protect us and serve us? And when do we know when it's gone too far?
0: Yeah, a lot of the habits that I talk about do, like I like to say, like they work for a while. They work until they don't. And so, for instance, perfectionism and overachieving and control they go hand in hand. I call them like the trifecta of the triggered. And that I I attribute that to allowing me to graduate with honors from college and start my own business. And, you know, someone that struggles with control, you might want that person on your team if you work in a corporate setting because they are efficient and productive and organized. (laughs) So what ends up happening is we get to a point where they start to affect our life negatively and or they are only being used, like I was saying before, so that we can engineer our life to look a certain way because we are afraid of making mistakes, of failing, of of looking quote unquote bad or like we don't have it all together in front of other people.
1: Right. Okay. So I'm just, I'm having this little moment of, oh, my, my need for achievement and perfectionism <laughs> and control. Truth be told, I only recently realized that I am a closet perfectionist because I'm not that perfectionist that everything has to be perfect in terms of like dotting my I's and crossing my T's. But my husband pointed it out to me that unless I think I can ace it, I don't want to try. Yeah. And I do So I'm really just coming to grips with how achievement and perfectionism have, like you said, worked really well for me in my life, but how it's actually hindering me in a lot of ways. So I need to read that chapter. (laughs)
0: Yeah, well I wanna I want, yeah, I wanna stop there for a second because I think that what you just said is so important. And I came up against that too, you know, after I had already written the book and and really call myself like a recovering perfectionist. But what I call that to an extent and and I'm I'm kind of guessing here, but it's that's upper limit stuff. And I don't know if you've read the book Um The Big Leap by yes. Gay Hendricks. Okay. It's okay. so
1: funny. I actually was uh talking about that book in my uh group coaching program last night.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a short read. It's it's great. I It's a great, I, I it's really a great one, everyone, it. yeah. Yeah. And basically what his theory is, is that he, he kind of coined the phrase upper limit problems. And it's his theory is that we all have like this set point of success and happiness. And that when we are called upon to rise above that, we sabotage and we, we there's a lot of, we're met with a lot of resistance or do we just won't do it. And so, you know, you and I were talking before the recording, I had a lot of resistance around going on a book tour and really pushing myself to be out there more in the spotlight when this book came out. And so I didn't want to do it. It because I was afraid and I did it anyway and it hasn't been going as swimmingly as I thought it was going to be. So that's the thing. it's like you I, I have to contend with it not going as well as I wanted to, but had I never done it. so I, I think my point is like the win is in actually trying that I am resilient. I will survive even if I don't succeed. And these are the things that, you know, when life beats us up, like these are the things that really teach us the lessons and show us how tough we really are and how resilient we really are. So it's never a failure. We always learn something from it. I mean, I'm not saying like it doesn't hurt.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) But like I was talking about this last night as well. The need to understand that courage means taking action While the fear is right there, courageous people are usually scared out of their wits. Totally. But they do it anyway.
0: Yeah. And that's, I, I say that all the time and I'm, I'm certified in the work of Dr. Brene Brown and she's sort of like the queen of, of really amazing quotes when it comes to courage and shame and fear. And she says, you know, we can choose courage or we can choose comfort, but we both, we can't have both at the same time. And I think for many people, they stay in that place of comfort. You know, it's like, this is what I know. This is what I know will work out. So I'm going to stay here. And I am here to attest that anytime I have stepped out of my comfort zone, it's not because I was fearless like I can't stand the word fearless like no one is fearless like we, we still have fear it's just that we know we have it or we choose courage and being scared at the same time and go for it
1: yeah i hear you i was i was saying that starting a podcast was absolutely petrifying for me but one of the best things i've ever done but i did it in spite of my fear the fear was there hey yes <laughs> Talking about that idea of we stay in that space of comfort because we know what to expect. Is that what happens with our habits as well? You know, like better the devil you know than the yes. than the devil you don't. <laughs> and so we just stay in our rut because we at least know where the edges of the rut are.
0: Yeah. And that's what I, I think, you know, the, the the one that popped up for me when you were saying that is self-sabotage. And I I talk about this in the book that, that was I had a client who she was a single mom and she had this on again, off again relationship with this man who she knew wasn't good for her. And every time she would you know, break up with someone or feel lonely, she would call him and she's like, when I'm texting him, I know how it's going to end. I know that this isn't going to be good for me, but I end up doing it anyway. And we get into these habits, you know, these repetitive patterns where we just, I mean, exactly like you were saying, like, like we get comfortable with that kind of discomfort and, to actually choose ourselves to actually shine the light on the things that, you know, big things like worthiness and (laughs) sometimes for some people, family of origin issues, daddy issues and things like that. Like, whoo, no, no. So that's what ends up happening. We get into these patterns and and I am here to encourage people to create some pattern disruptors.
1: I love that. Some pattern disruptors. This book Mm -hmm. is designed to help you disrupt your unhelpful patterns. Perfect. You also mentioned in the book, which just made my heart want to do a little happy dance, that sometimes life just happens and it isn't your fault. I agree with you so wholeheartedly that a lot of sort of self-help or the new age movement kind of implies that whatever happens to you, somehow you brought into your life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Somehow it's your fault. How do we make sure that self-help doesn't get us to that place? How do we make sure that self-help doesn't actually turn into a form of beating ourselves up? Oh, totally.
0: That's such a good question. So yeah, I really struggled with that for a long time because the beginning of my my personal development journey was from the movie and the book, The Secret, which is all about the law of attraction and what you folk, you know, what you put out there, you get back. And to some extent, honestly, Kate, like I, st- there are still some things that I take from those lessons and more specifically of, of energy and what you focus on, you create more of, I do believe that, but I think that it can get a little bit out of hand and, and sort of bypass the reality of life and just like the real struggles that we have. And, and so to, to sort of more specifically answer your question, I think that if you read a self-help book and you walk away from it feeling worse about yourself than you did in the beginning, that's something to look at. And that's that's what I was after that I, I think that I did not want people to to feel like they were doing life wrong. You know, this isn't a book of like, here are the 14 things you're doing wrong in your life. You need to change them and fix them. And then you'll be happy. I wanted this to be, here are the 14 things that we're all doing. Let's recognize it quickly when we're in them because you're going to keep doing them. Like (laughs) I still do them. So it's a matter of recognizing it really quick. I think that for a lot of people, self-help can become a bit of an addiction. And and it's just this whole, I, I think again, for some people that, Just reading self-help books and listening to podcasts makes them feel better temporarily. And then they go back to this place of, but why am I not happier? Because they're not actually doing the work. They're just consuming it and like hoarding the tools, but not actually using any of them. So if that's anybody who's listening, I invite you to just, you know, choose one tool to actually implement, answer the questions when you get a self-help book. And there's questions at the end of the chapter, like mine, or a workbook, you know, that the author has thoughtfully put together for you actually do the work.
1: Yeah, that makes so much sense. And I really do love the way that you said, if a self-help book makes you feel shittier after reading it than you did going in then you really need to look at that
0: yeah and it might be that you feel shittier because you just got called out on what is actually happening in your life you know there's I call it the point of no return when you are doing personal development and you realize your issues and then you are in you're in so far like you've turned the lights on in a messy kitchen and you're like oh shit this is a mess. Like I, where do I even start with this? Like, I don't even want to clean it up. Can't I just turn the lights back off and go back to bed and pretend like I never saw it? No, you're at the point of no return. You can't go back <laughs> and like to go in and start cleaning it up. It feels uncomfortable. And then to do nothing and know it's there also feels uncomfortable. So you get to pick and that is a hard place to be. And for some people, I don't think this gets talked about enough in self help. So I talk about it. I think that that can be a place of grief of just realizing how much work there is to do. And it is like that for all of us. You don't get to be you know, 30 years old and can be completely unscathed from your family of origin. I do think that our parents absolutely do the best they can with the tools they have. Some parents do a really shitty job. Some parents do just an okay job. But we walk out of that with perspectives that are unique to us. And, and all that to say, we all have stuff and it is uncomfortable to look at.
1: I just, I'm so glad you are talking about that because I've never heard someone say it so perfectly that when you are on a journey of self-discovery or self-development, you do hit that point where you're like, oh, now it's full steam ahead, right? Yeah. Like there's no going back. And and I personally talk about the majority of the population are walking through life sleepwalking. And okay. it's when you kind of start to open one of your eyes and you're like, oh, there's this whole world out there. So I love it. I love it that you're like, <laughs> when you turn on the lights in the
0: kitchen and you're like, oh damn, it's a mess. I got to clean this up. God, yes. It's just, it's, you know, and honestly, Kate, there are some days, they're there very few and far between, but there are some days where I am like, you know, I look up at the sky and I'm like, can I just please go back to living an unconscious l- life and being like on the surface level and only caring about, you know, like what outfit I'm going to wear to the party this weekend. <laughs> <You know? laughs> instead of like all this hard stuff, but it's, um, it just, it's, it's not easy work. And I think that this, but this is the biggest work that we'll ever do. That's the most important to not just ourselves, but to the world.
1: Oh, I totally hear you. And I have those days too. I feel like this is a really good time to talk about numbing because when I'm in those moments, sometimes I just want to bury my head in the sand when I just look around at, at the world and life. And I'm like, Oh, too hard. Like, can I just yeah. can I just pretend that I have never seen all of this hard? Because I have to admit, the more personal development I have done, the more joy I experience, the more elated I feel. The I would never ever go back. But my my sadness and my grief is also deeper. You know, the mm-hmm. the complete spectrum of my feelings is wider. So there are certainly days that I want to just bury my head in the sand and be like, oh life is tough. Yeah. You said that numbing was always one of your go-to tools. And you mentioned in the book, there are so many different ways we
0: numb out from life.
1: Can Mm -hmm. we talk about some of those ways?
0: Yeah, for sure. I think it's such an important topic and, there's the obvious ones that we know about, which you know are the 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 more common addictions. But I think that now in 2018, we are numbing out with social media and just the internet in general. We are numbing out. I think it's always been a big one, you know, with TV and movies, with now we have now we have access at our fingertips like we never had before with Netflix and Hulu, etc. And I think that also things like there's somebody and I can't remember who it was that kind of it might have been my friend Terry Cole coined the phrase, you know, shadow addictions, I call them more noble addictions, like work. And also, for me, planning, planning is a big numbing out mechanism that I love to do still, and I have to watch out for because it's very sneaky.
1: That is a sneaky one. So mm-hmm. yeah, when we're talking about numbing out and you're talking about some of those badge of honor ones, I assume you're talking about things like productivity and busyness.
0: Exercise, self-help.
1: Ex- yeah, exercise mm-hmm. and help. I love it, the irony. When you numb <laughs> out on self-help. <laughs> it's right. <so> perfect.
0: <laughs> yeah. Or and, and, and what that might look like for people is, like I was mentioning before, so it's the consuming, it's the massive consuming. You know, I had a client who said, um, she was a new client and she said, I can't even go to the grocery store without my earbuds and listening to a personal development podcast. So like I put her, I'm like, you need to go on strike. Like, no, just like listen to silence. And it was uncomfortable for her to actually like be with her thoughts and her feelings and everything. So I say that cause there might be people listening who do that. <laughs>
1: Right. It's funny. I I knew there was a reason I liked you, Andrea, because one of the things I say to people is when you are deepening your self-knowledge, you have to put enough space in your life, which when I say space, I mean just silence, to start hearing your own thoughts, Yeah. not constantly filling yourself up with other people's thoughts. There becomes a point where your thoughts need enough room to rise to the surface.
0: Yeah. And I I mean I used to get down on myself because I didn't read all the self-help books there was. And at night when I go to bed, how I comfort myself and just wind down from the day is I love fiction. I love I love memoirs a lot, but I love even like chiclet and and things like that that are not don't have anything to do with self-help. And the the reality is is I don't have enough bandwidth at eight, nine o'clock at night to consume a self-help book and actually be thoughtful about it. And also this is what I do for living. So it's like, I don't want to work more at eight and nine o'clock at night, but I was kind of down on myself about it. And I just, I finally had to just accept like, you know what? No, I need to take care of myself. And it's like, I'm going to be just fine. And I'm still an expert. I'm still good at what I do, even though I haven't read every single book out there known to man around self-help.
1: I feel like there's so many, Andrea. I, lo- I, I love, I love, I love the fact that you felt like that was something in your unconscious mind that you needed to do for a moment. I wasn't good enough. Yeah. <laughs> I want to get to know you a little bit better, so I ask all of my interviewees a bunch of fun little questions that we just get really nosy, really about you. <laughs> so it's your turn, Andrea. What is on your nightstand?
0: Can you remember?: I am re- Yes, I'm reading "The Women Who Run with the Wolves.":
1: I haven't read this yet, but I, people keep telling me about this book.
0: I am slogging through it, Kate. like it let me just be honest for a minute. It's It's genius. Dr. Oh, what's her last name? Kelly Estes, I think. Camille, I, I, I'm getting her first name wrong. But she is a genius. And it was written like in the 1970s. Like it's so smart and thoughtful that I have to read the same page like 15 times because again, I'm reading it like eight or nine o'clock at night and I'm so tired. I'm like, oh, this is so good, but I can't. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's a little I feel like it's a little heavy for me personally, but it's great. It's is great. It,
1: is it a little bit like The Alchemist? Isn't like the storytelling yes. full of wisdom?
0: The storytelling full of wisdom almost even a little bit like what is it a new earth the Eckhart Tolle book yes yeah
1: you know yeah. the new earth still I, I when people ask me what book changed my life it was a new earth but it is not easy reading
0: I think you have to be in the right place in your life too yeah, for mm-hmm. the to yeah it might not be for everybody right now
1: are you a morning person or a night person
0: I used to be a night person but since I had children I am a morning person and you've got
1: two kids, right, Andrea? How old? Ten and eight. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I, I wish I was a morning person. My, I've got a four and a five-year-old, and I still struggle to get up in the mornings with them. Yeah, I
0: mean, it's, <laughs> I'm not like I don't bounce out of bed, <laughs> but it's, I definitely do my best, most productive work in the morning. What is your favorite self-care activity? Probably meditation, and I don't do it enough. It's it's also the thing I'm like, oh, I just I need to get to these emails, but I always end up kind of getting to that place of why am I so anxious? Oh, it's because I haven't meditated in two weeks. So I always return to it.
1: Yeah, I I find it the exact same way. Talking about that favorite book idea, do you have one? Do you have a self help or? chiclet fiction, whichever works for you. Do you have a favorite book, one that just you read potentially at the right time in your life or a book that has sort of stuck in your head as being special that you can share with us?
0: Um, It's so hard to pick one. Uh, probably, I mean, one of the first books that really made me realize that I needed help was a classic, Melody Beattie's Codependent No More. I read that a long time ago. I've read it a couple of times because, again, the first time I was like, oh, my gosh, this is me. It was such a huge, um, breathtaking eye opener, but I wasn't ready to actually do the work to change. So that's probably the book that has changed my life the most.
1: So that was potentially the book that opened your eyes and made you realize that you'd seen your shit.
0: Yeah, but I, I mean, I want to emphasize I wasn't ready to change it yet. And I think I say that because I think that that's the case for so many people. Like the book, quote unquote, changed my life. But it just sort of like cracked everything open in terms of again, oh, maybe it's me. But it was so earth shattering of the maybe it's me because I, it was easier for me to blame everybody else. Like if you would just change and treat me better, then I would be happier and feel more loved. Like it was all everybody else's fault and everyone's responsibility to make me happier and to change my life. So when I finally realized like it's not anyone else's responsibility and this is mine and that was really scary. Eventually I got to a place of so much peace and freedom around it. Like this is so much easier (laughs) than to rely on everyone else. But that first like, mm, like decade, I was like, oh no, it was too It was too scary.
1: I love your honesty around that, that it was like a decade of coming to terms with what you had learned.
0: That's all I knew. You know, like I grew up, my family of origin story is I grew up in a family that loved the hell out of me. I, we didn't, I was so lucky that I didn't have any kind of abuse, but my family did not talk about the hard stuff. There was no vulnerability. We had one We had one feeling in our family, and that was happiness and love. And if you had any others, especially the hard ones, you went and did those in your room by yourself. And when you were done, you came out. Like, and we never talked about it. Nothing bad ever happens. Like, just let's just, if we sweep it under the rug, maybe it will just go away. And so, while that was fine, you know, when I was a little kid, it didn't teach me any coping mechanisms or any lessons or that it was safe to have harder feelings. So I put all of my, all of my happiness in other, you know, I put all those eggs in somebody else's basket. Typically, you know, when I was, became like an older teen and, and young adult, whomever I was dating at the time, whoever I was in love with. And that was, that was a recipe for disaster, but I kept trying and kept trying.
1: Oh my gosh. I could, I, We have the same story, you know, uh, and I did the same thing in my 20s with Mm -hmm. boyfriends. I was in a counseling psychology class in my master's program in New Zealand and um, the psychologist who was leading the class sort of, we did little one-on-ones with him and I was talking about my need to to feel needed by other guys Mm -hmm. and, you know, like Mm -hmm. I had these two guys I was kind of texting or whatever at the time and my desperate need to feel needed and he said either two things happened in your childhood. You were loved so much by your parents and you just expect to always have this high level (laughs) of attention or the complete opposite. You never got enough. And I was like, oh, well, I definitely definitely don't fall into the never got enough pile. So I was like, wow, like I had to learn how to be out in the world. I really did and not find my self-worth and how other people loved me.
0: God, it's it's such a hard lesson for parents to teach children. I think parents kind of can't win, right? <laughs> they just kind of We're do screwed. their best and like <laughs> uh, you just try to go out there. But it's 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 really yeah. For me, it was a sense of entitlement. Like, no, you owe this to me. Like you you need to be this sort of like pillar of love for me. And uh, yeah, and, and I didn't know how to do the work.
1: Yeah, I was also a bit of a I had rescuer syndrome, so I always wanted to rescue people too. So. I just, I wanted
0: people to rescue me.
1: (laughs) I I went down the rabbit hole with them. It was, it was fun at times. All right. So was there, I feel like we've kind of already spoken about this, but you might have another one. Is there a life lesson that took you a while to learn? One that really you took the long road on?
0: Uh, yeah, I think that, trust is that one, both trusting other people and trusting myself. I'll I'll speak about trusting myself. I didn't trust for, you know, for example, I didn't trust that my emotions were safe. I, um, it was never modeled for me at home. And I know for some people, their family of origin story is either no emotions were shown at all, or talked about or there was a lot of emotion at home. And it was never talked about it in a healthy way. It was just, you know, scary for, for people. And I stuffed my feelings either by numbing out or again, by putting on the facade that I was strong. And I I took that identity and I ran with it. And I, what ended up happening is that I, I built up a lot of anger. I was, you know, with like moment, definitely moments of rage in my twenties. And I took that out. I, I literally just over the weekend reconnected with a woman who was my best friend during one of the hard, hardest times of my life. And we hadn't, we hadn't connected in about a Decade, maybe eight years. And um, yeah, seven or eight years. And we, of course, had this like heart to heart. We're crying. And she said to me, I never had I never had the guts to tell you that sometimes you were mean to me and you hurt my feelings. And it, of course, it felt like a punch in the stomach. But I she was right. And I said, I'm, and I had written her a letter and and made amends because I had a pretty good feeling that I had been kind of a dick to her. And I said, and she's like, you were super clear in your letter, you know, your apologies and I forgive you. Um, so she was kind of apologizing to me cause she ghosted me basically. So she was apologizing to me for, for doing that. And I, I told her, I said, I had so much anger inside of, inside of me from things that were not your fault. And I, it came out on pe- the people that I loved the most and I'm sorry. And so it was such a great experience for me to be able to, to own that as uncomfortable as it was and apologize for it and forgive myself, you know, and, and then also now be able to trust myself that I can walk through fire and and, and and stuff that is so difficult and I will be okay. Right. That
1: I think it is such an important point to say that stuffing emotions, they don't disappear. They have mm-hmm. to come out some way. And like you mentioned, those moments of rage in your twenties where there was so much emotion inside of you that it had to escape somehow. And it escaped in ways you didn't necessarily want it to.
0: Mm-hmm to my best friend. Yeah. And I was just biting and passive aggressive and, and sarcastic and just mean, just mean. And, and yeah, it was, it was just, I didn't know that I would be okay.
1: So do you feel like now this many years further into your, your own development, do you feel like now you have better skills to cope with the tough emotions?
0: yes so for a long time you know it was control and codependency and and blame and um perfectionism and then it i started to heal from those when my kids were really little but that's when my drinking picked up so then i that happened for a little while and then i got sober in 2011 they were 2 and 4 at the time when i got sober so i have 6 plus years of sobriety and now i you know i've been in, i'm a person in long term recovery so now i rely on people that I trust, you know, I have a handful of people that I trust to to talk to when I'm in struggle, whereas before I would not have reached out to them. I didn't trust them enough. And also, and, and just like being in that discomfort and, and and doing things like, you know, going for a run or listening to music, writing is a huge self-care mechanism that I use and just other, you know, actually just getting it out and processing it instead of like, I say in the book, like, you know, you can't bury your feelings alive and expect them to die. Like that's what I used to do before. And just, I mean, that's why they call it baggage because we stuff it down and we carry it around with us forever.
1: I love that. You can't stuff your feelings when they're alive and expect them to die. Yeah. So good. Yeah. The power of processing. I, I hear you. What is one thing in your day, Andrea, that you can't do without?
0: I would say like loving and snuggling on my kids. I just, we're so overbooked and overscheduled in in our lives now, just like stopping to like smell their hair and their necks and just breathe them in. That is, that's the good stuff right there.
1: Oh, I've just got the biggest smile. (laughs) How would you describe the soul, Andrea? I did say these were like quick fire questions, but I was kind of lying.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. I don't know how to answer that question. So I'm going to say the first thing that comes to mind. So when I, I do believe that we, that our souls are floating around like somehow, I don't know what it looks like, but I do think that we come back. I know for a fact that my soul has walked this earth before me. I grew up in a religious um, upbringing. And I remember when I was in sixth or seventh grade, I was going through confirmation and I told my pastor, this man that I trusted, who was my religious mentor and guide. I was so excited. And I I, I sat down in his office, and we were talking about you know confirmation things. And, and I said, well, I, I don't know how the topic came up and I said, well, I, I know that I've been reincarnated and that I know that my soul has walked this earth before. And and so I'm excitedly talking to him about it. And he says, oh, we don't, we don't actually believe that in our religion. And I remember being crushed. And, um, so it's taken me a long time, you know, religious dogma can kind of stay with you when you go through a spiritual transition like I did. And so I, I do, I, I'm now contending with how important taking care of your soul is. And for me, that looks like, like you were saying, you know, getting quiet and meditating and listening to my intuition. And I'm, I'm really fascinated with our legacy and, and you know where we come from and even moon cycles and things like that. It's all very woo woo. And I have crystals and burn sage and light candles and I love it.
1: (laughs) I was listening to you talk about that in your own podcast, actually, by the way, and how you're just more drawn to the woo woo lately.
0: Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's kind of like a natural progression that happens to a lot of us. (laughs) But I definitely have not always been that way. You know, if I can think and do my way through something, I'd rather do that. It's more concrete. It's more comfortable because the woo-woo and the, you know, otherworldly things, there is no hard and fast answer. And so overachieving, overanalytical, smart people tend to move away from that. But I can't ignore the feeling inside me anymore.
1: Yep. I'm with you. I'm with you on all of this. Final question then. Well, only in the quick fire. I've got more questions after that. Okay. What <laughs> is fulfillment to you?
0: Um, oh my gosh, I think actually, <laughs> I'm so mean, right? I know. I think listening to what you listening and knowing what you actually want, like knowing what your values are. The, the last chapter of my book is all about this because I think so few people actually do values work and knowing what that looks like on a day to day basis, not just what the names of your values are, but what that actually looks like. That's fulfillment.
1: Okay. I want to talk a bit more about people pleasing, and we've already touched on it a little bit, but I want to talk about this because I feel like this is the habit in the book. It's I want to talk about myself, really. So this was the habit in the book that I'm like, oh, this is the one that kept me stuck and feeling like shit for so much longer in my life than it should have. I was a notorious people pleaser in my 20s. And I felt like I just got further and further into the space of people pleasing and further and further away from myself. And I can remember I broke up with a boyfriend and I actually got feedback from his friend after we, well, he broke up with me, I should say, after we um, had broken up. And the feedback from his friend was like, he just said you were just so nice. You were just far too nice and you were far too perfect and he couldn't upset you even if he tried. And I look back now and at the time I was like, oh, that is tough feedback. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what's wrong with never like being upset or never having a fight? And I realized that I was just a shell of a person and I wasn't letting my own opinions or you know, my
0: soul shine through. So it sounds like it, what I guess, right? When you said that, I was like, "Oh, it looks like he wanted to connect with her on like a soul, you know, heart level, which involves actually like showing your emotions, and you weren't ready for that."
1: Yeah, I was given none of it. I was like, "Can yeah. we just live like happily ever after at a surface on the level, please?" Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> can we just be like super smiley in photos? Mm-hmm. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on people pleasing. What do you see in your clients? What, if this is something you've dealt with, what have you seen in yourself and how does it fuck us up and potentially Mm -hmm. how do we pull ourselves out of it?
0: I think, you know, people pleasing and approval seeking is it can be pretty complex and nuanced within people. But if I can just talk about it generally, what people pleasers tend to do, one of the biggest things that they do is that they have poor boundary setting, is that they they tend to say yes to things that they don't want to do, and they can tend to get taken advantage of, and they are very hung up on other people's feelings. They feel responsible for other people's feelings, so that is what leads them to say yes to things that they don't want to do, and, and just generally kind of run around helping other people, and You know, if you can identify with being codependent, you probably really struggle with people pleasing. And and again, what it all comes down to is boundaries. And I talk about in the book like how to actually set a boundary because I don't think very many people know how to do it. I know I never did until I, you know, got into my own personal development. But and it's also you know having hard conversations. Like like my friend that I just told you that story. Like she didn't know how to tell me that I was sucking as a friend. She probably, you know, we didn't get into it, but I, my guess is that she felt responsible for my feelings and didn't want to hurt my feelings, knew it would, it would hurt my feelings and chose to ghost me and say nothing. It got too hard for her to bear instead of actually saying, Hey, um, I I really care about you and love you. And, I can't accept this behavior anymore. This is, this isn't going to work for me. So, um, so she was people pleasing. <laughs> so I'm going to stop right there and, and, and let you talk and like, which direction do you want to go? I think it's really interesting
1: that you said responsible for other people's feelings. Cause when I think mm-hmm. about my own journey, cause I don't see myself as a people pleaser anymore, but that is the crucial shift I made is I used to think that I was responsible for other people's feelings and keeping them happy. And like you said earlier in the podcast, the Flip was also true in my mind that my boyfriend was responsible for keeping me happy, or that that wasn't my responsibility to keep myself happy. It was someone else's, and it was my job to keep everyone around me happy.
0: Yeah, that's poor boundary setting.
1: But I feel like that's been the huge shift. Now I'm like, other people's stuff is their stuff, my stuff is my stuff, and it's my responsibility to keep myself happy so that I can show up and be a happy human in the world. And I think that's been the crucial shift for me.
0: Yes, and to me that speaks to there's there's a lot of really great clichés and sayings in the world of recovery where I where I where I live. And one of those sayings is keep your side of the street clean. And that's what you were speaking to. But where it gets tricky is like okay, where does your street start and my street end? Like where's the intersection? And it's sort of this dance that sometimes we don't know where it is until we get into messes, like until we see the mess and then we're like, oh, okay, this is where, <laughs> this is where my str- side ends. And, and so like, you know, going back to that example that I was talking about for my friend, that, that, what that would look like is, is her, my, my best friend, her name's Amy Smith. Like she's excellent teacher at this. And she says, you can always share your truth with grace and kindness. So what that would have looked like is her telling me, like I started to say, I love you so much and care about you and I care about this friendship and it hurts me when you say things like this. Is there a way that we can remedy this to save our friendship? So that and who like I never knew how to say things like that. Like if for her the answer was ghosting me. For someone else it might be saying shut up or you know like or or being aggressive and just mean and like firing back. That's what we do. Or, you know, just, or just taking it and taking it. So, so we, we don't know how to handle these, you know, really uncomfortable situations around boundaries. Boundaries are not easy. And like, there is a way to have these conversations and do it gracefully and with honesty.
1: Oh, I like that with grace and kindness. That's going to sit with me. That's going to stay. You had a personal crisis in the middle of writing this book. If you're willing to share a little bit about it, we would love to hear it. Can we talk about how it potentially impacted your writing of this book?
0: Yeah, so my dad died when I was about seventy percent done with a manuscript. So my manuscript was due December thirty first of twenty sixteen to the publisher, and my dad died on October sixteenth. And so he got sick, and maybe three weeks before that. We found out he was terminal. I flew home to San Diego to be with him, and he died. And I was there with him when he died. I had never lost anyone before that, so it was brutal. I wrote about it in the book because, you know, obviously I was wasn't done writing it, so I got I had the. I I, um, had the ability to go back and and change some of the chapters, especially the numbing chapter. But what that taught me was, again, like I was saying before, that I can walk through that kind of grief, which was the biggest inferno of feelings I had ever done in my entire life and be okay through it. I stayed sober through it. I don't know how some days, but it just, it really taught me that I am resilient and that I can actually process my feelings and live to see another day. Mm.
1: So good. Final question for you, Andrea, if you could leave people with one piece of advice today, what would it be?
0: I think, you know, my theme, you know, as I talk about this book and, and get to connect with amazing people like you, my theme has been to, to do the work. And I know that if anyone's listening to this, they value personal development and growth mindset, and that's all fine and dandy, but are you actually doing the work or are you someone who I call it, you know, are you on the the self-help hamster wheel? where you're consuming and consuming and consuming, but not actually implementing. So this is not to blame and shame you. <laughs> but to, you know, grab your favorite self-help book, you know, the, the, the one that that really knocked you on your ass the very first time you read it. Go back and look at the things that you've highlighted in dog-eared. Have you actually implemented some of the really great advice and wisdom that's in that book or, or podcast episode? Go do that.
1: I really love having these conversations. If you want to grab Andrea's book, head to Amazon, How to Stop Feeling Like Shit. It's an easy to digest and super practical guide. You can also find Andrea over at yourkickasslife.com or on social anywhere at Your kick Life, including her podcast. We mentioned a bunch of books in this episode and I have made a little reading list in the show notes. So head over there if you want to look at the names of the books we were talking about, or you can head to my website, thrive.how forward slash podcast 77 to find the show notes there as well. If you enjoyed this podcast, subscribe, tell a friend, or if you have a couple of moments, it would mean so much if you could leave a little review. Till next week, when I'll be back again on Friday, keep thriving.